0: So we're studying through the life of Jesus in chronological order using all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John as our text. And this week we're picking up our study right where we left off last week. Jesus is in the middle of teaching what's known as the Sermon on the Mount, probably the greatest message ever preached, and has just taught his disciples how to pray using something that most of us know as the Lord's Prayer. You can listen to last week's message on our website if you missed that. So let's just pick up right where we left off last week. We're in the Gospel of Matthew, first book in the New Testament, chapter 6, verse 14. Matthew six fourteen. Jesus is speaking, and he says, For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. It's a problematic little bit of scripture. And the first thing I need to explain to you is that Jesus is not talking about your salvation here. He's not saying if you don't forgive someone else, you will not be saved. You won't spend eternity with him. That's not what he's saying. Write this down. Jesus is not referring to salvation, but rather our regular need for healing and cleansing from sin healing and cleansing from sin. Just to illustrate this point, last week in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus instructed us to pray on a regular basis, forgive us our trespasses, forgive us our debts, forgive us our sins but we would all hopefully understand that when we're doing that we're not getting saved over and over again. So asking for forgiveness of those sins is not saving us again. When we're saved that's a definitive once forever event that puts us on the path of following Jesus Christ. It's a single moment in time that that happens. We're not always aware when that moment is, but it's a moment when we commit to follow Jesus Christ. At that moment we are saved. So when Jesus asks us to pray for forgiveness after that, why is he doing that. I think the reason is multifold, really. I think when we ask God for forgiveness, one, it reminds us that we need forgiveness. And one of the things that makes Christians begin to take the cross and the sacrifice of Jesus for granted is when we forget that we need forgiveness. When you're going to God on a regular basis, hopefully every day in confession, going to the Lord directly and asking for forgiveness, you're being reminded, hey, i I need forgiveness every day. And that causes us not to take the cross lightly. It also causes us to be healed and cleansed by God. It's not a salvation issue. We're not going to hell. But when he forgives us, he frees us from things like guilt and shame and from the building up of sin in our lives. Have you ever noticed how sin builds up in your lives when you don't go to the Lord with it and it just begins to build up and get a grip and a hold on you? So Jesus is speaking here about that healing and that cleansing that we need. And what he's saying is that the Father will not release us from guilt and shame and the spiritual damage of our sins. He won't heal us if we withhold forgiveness from other people. That's very directly what he's saying. If we want to live free, then we need to live forgiven. And if we want to live forgiven, we need to forgive, period. This is exactly the type of issue that the book of James deals with. James would probably say, forgiving other people is not what saves you, but forgiving other people is what saved people do. You can go ahead and write that down on your outlines. Forgiving other people is not what saves you, but forgiving other people is what saved people do. And here's why. It is impossible to truly understand what Jesus has done for you, what he suffered for you, everything that he's forgiven you, It's impossible to understand the grace that you've received and the cost of the cross and then turn around and deny that grace to somebody else. You just can't do it without being the biggest hypocrite in the world. Because the grace of Jesus is so humbling, so overwhelming, and so undeserved that if you understand it, you will realize that whatever you are required to forgive is nothing compared to what you've been forgiven. It's not like you're forgiving someone and saying, okay, Jesus, no, I've forgiven something really big, so we're even now. It's still heavily, horribly, gloriously tilted in your favor. He's forgiven everything you've ever done, everything you ever will do. I'll say it again. Forgiving other people is not what saves you, but forgiving other people is what saved people do. Let me just be honest. If you're being plagued by guilt and shame that you can't seem to get rid of, Maybe it's over a sin that you've been involved in. You've committed. You're not even doing that now, but you just can't get rid of the stain, the guilt, and the shame of it. I believe that the text is saying that Jesus would want me to ask you, is there someone that you are withholding forgiveness from? And that withholding of forgiveness is causing God to withhold his forgiveness towards you. It's causing the Father to not free you and heal you and cleanse you from the stain of that sin. If you will release that person's debt, I believe you'll find your own debt being released, and you'll find the freedom that you crave. If that's you, the one thing you need to do today is you need to take communion in the back when we have worship. We're going to have about 20 minutes of reflection and worship after this message. If that's you during that time, go back, take communion, remember what Jesus has done for you, remember how you've been forgiven, and then you forgive that person. I believe you'll walk out of here healed today in your soul. I really believe that, forgiven. All throughout the New Testament, Jesus is held up as the reason for our behavior. He is held up as our motivation. Time and time again, the Bible tells us the reason we must forgive others is simple. We've been forgiven. We've been forgiven. Jesus has forgiven us. He's our motivation and he's our model. And I've realized there's no comeback I can come up with to the statement, forgive others because Jesus has forgiven you. I have no comeback to that. And, and neither do you. There's just no comeback to that. In James 2.13, we're told that mercy is triumphs over judgment. I love that. Mercy triumphs over judgment. I hope you're as thankful for that as I am, that mercy triumphed over judgment. And you and I need to live on the winning side, the side of mercy. Jesus switches gears here in verse 16. He says, moreover, When you fast, underline that word when in your Bibles. When you fast, do not be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces that they may appear to men to be fasting. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward, but you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that you do not appear to men to be fasting, but to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. The Pharisees, who we learned last week, would blow their little trumpets on street corners when they were giving away money to the poor uh, and would pray on street corners to show everyone how excited they were about going to church. They fasted every Monday and every Thursday. You could always tell because when they were fasting, they would walk around with long faces, drawn in cheeks, unbrushed teeth, just uncombed hair, looking as miserable and unkempt as possible. In our context, it would be like a person fasting, posting stuff on Facebook like, so tired today. You know, or uh, sometimes it's good to suffer for Jesus. You know, and then wait for the inevitable responses of, what's going on? Is everything okay? Okay, totally unspiritually here. Pastor Jeff's staying over here. Jeff, the human being, just don't do that on Facebook. Don't do that. Don't be that person who's like, sometimes life is just so hard. And then sit back and wait, you know, to reel in the fish. Oh, here it comes. Is everything okay? Don't be that person. That's what the Pharisees would have been doing here. So tired today. What's going on? Oh, I'm fasting. That's all. (laughs) Jesus said that we should fast privately and discreetly, not drawing attention to ourselves. Not drawing attention to ourselves. Then our Father will reward us. Fasting is an important discipline of believers that's often neglected by the Western Church. Did you notice that Jesus said, when you fast? Not, if you fast. He said, when you fast. The implication is that Jesus expects and assumes that his followers will fast. He expects and assumes that his followers will fast. It's just that simple. In the scriptures, we see fasting for two main reasons. The first is for direction, Both examples in the Old Testament of this are found in the book of Ezra, the book of Nehemiah. And in the New Testament, we see Jesus fasting. We also see the disciples and the apostles and the early church fasting in the book of Acts. When people wanted to know God's will or his direction, they would fast for clarity on that. Physiologists tell us that when there's no food in the stomach, there's greater blood flow to the brain. It's actually a survival mechanism of the body. And you can actually think more clearly when you're not digesting burgers and fries. Funnily enough, once you overcome those first pangs of hunger, your thinking process really becomes more focused and clearer than ever. On the flip side, has anyone ever found McDonald's to be a great Kickstarter to a super productive time of contemplation? You ever found that? I'd like to contemplate a nap. That's about the only thing I've I've ever thought. That's really all that happens. But uh, fasting gives you clarity. It gives you focus. Second, people fast for freedom. They fast for freedom. When you feel oppressed or bound or just entrapped by some sort of sin or problem, fasting is a powerful weapon in the spiritual arsenal. Because when you say no to your stomach and start praying instead, something dynamic begins to happen. Saying no to your physical appetites empowers you to say no to your spiritual appetites that are not right. And if you're plagued by temptation, I I encourage you to begin exploring the discipline of fasting because it is a discipline. And as you discipline your body, You understand what it is to discipline your soul and your spirit and your mind as well and and much of the problem we often have is that as the Western Church we're just horribly undisciplined a, a lot of the time and fasting is a discipline it is difficult but it's bringing your physical being under the control of Jesus Christ and saying I want my spirit and my heart and my mind to follow as well there's real power in fasting if you need direction if you hunger for liberation consider fasting. I really encourage you. If you're going to do a longer fast, I'd encourage you to check with your doctor first. But one, two, three days is usually not that big of a deal. And by the way, I I can tell you from experience, the first day or two are always the toughest. And then after that, your body sort of hits a groove and things actually get a lot easier. It's not hard to go from three days to seven days. Uh, You can find out more about fasting on our blog. We blogged on this a while ago. The link is on your outline. Just some practical pointers there for you. Verse 19, Jesus continues. He says, Now do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. You want to underline all of verse 21 for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Two things I really want us to understand here. Jesus reminds us of the true reality of life, and he reminds us of the true reality of love, and I'm going to unpack this for you. Firstly, the true reality of life is this. We're going to spend eternity in heaven. We are going to spend eternity in heaven. That is the true reality for every person who follows and believes in Jesus Christ. We will spend eternity in heaven, not here. In light of that reality, Jesus makes a very simple point Everything material that we store up for ourselves here on earth is going to stay on earth when we leave. Everything material that we store up here will stay here. And we're leaving. That's Jesus saying, guys, this is the reality. You need to understand the reality of this. He wants us to understand that we would be fools to live our lives as though we were going to be here forever. We would be fools to store up treasure here Instead, Jesus says, more logical would be to store up treasure where you're going to live forever. That would be a good thing to do. Have you ever contemplated your heavenly investment portfolio? Have you ever examined your life and resources and asked the question, what am I doing with my life and my resources to store up treasure where it's going to last forever? Any good investment banker will tell you that you need to be diligent and attentive towards your financial portfolio. Most people understand this, and so we we actually pay people to do that for us. Not me, but people do that for people. But how much more should we be attentive to our heavenly investment portfolio? Instead, many Christians live and invest their lives as though heaven doesn't exist, as though it doesn't exist. Jesus says, don't let that be you. Don't let that be you. Invest wisely. I've made you aware of reality. Now use it to your advantage. Secondly, the true reality of love. Remember, this is Jesus talking. So Jesus is our creator. So when Jesus tells us something about the way we're wired as human beings, we would be wise to listen and foolish to say, no, it doesn't apply to me. This is your maker speaking. This is my maker telling me something about the way I'm wired. And Jesus tells us that when it comes to love, you can write this down, We are made to love the things we invest in. We are made to love the things we invest in. Jesus isn't asking you if this applies to you. He's telling you this applies to you. This is how you're wired. We're made to love the things we invest in. It doesn't work the other way around. We don't invest in the things we love. We love the things we invest in. So Jesus says that the investment actually results in greater love for whatever we invest in. That's important because if you believe that love leads to investment, you've created an equation where feelings precede actions. How many marriages have fallen apart because of that belief? We believe that, no, 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 you invest in the things you love. Well, what happens when the feeling of love isn't present? Well, then I stop investing. Huge problems when that happens because you put feelings before actions. And if the feelings aren't there, then you're not going to do The actions. What usually ends up happening is that you never feel enough love for the kingdom of heaven to get around to investing in it. When you do it Jesus' way, actions precede feelings. You know and understand the truth that the kingdom of heaven needs to be your priority, so you invest in it. Then your feelings of love and affection for the kingdom and the things of God begin to grow. The feelings follow the actions every single time. Wherever my treasure is, that's where my heart will be. If I have financial investments, I will follow the stock market carefully. If I hold real estate, I will follow the housing market with genuine interest. And if I have treasure in heaven, guess where my interest and my heart will be? In the heavenly things, in the things of God. Invest in the kingdom of heaven and your heart will follow, guarantee it. Giving is not God's way of raising cash. Giving is God's way of raising kids. It's his way of raising kids. Every time I give, I'm giving away part of my stinginess and part of my selfishness. And you know what I've learned? I have an infinite amount of stinginess and selfishness to give away. It's always there. I never go to give something and say, you know, I don't need to give because if I'm honest, there's not a selfish bone in my body anymore. I think I've just reached that place now. So no need to give. (laughs) The Lord wants my heart. He wants my heart, not my money. So you know what happens is people who don't want to give money go, oh, good. I'll give them my heart then because my heart is free. Here's the problem. Your heart and your money are connected. They're connected. So God says, use your money, which your heart is attached to, to put me first. Make your money serve me. Your heart will follow. On this point, I, I want to say one last thing because there are some of you in this room who are doing amazing at this. You are investing in the kingdom of heaven, and I I want to encourage you in that because we live in a world, and I would say we live especially in a city Where keeping up with the Joneses is is a huge thing. I've lived all over the world, and and I've never seen anything, even when it comes to houses and property like like we have in Vancouver. We're just talking before the service. You know, any, any couple who's in their early 20s just believes I should have a townhouse that costs three quarters of a million dollars. That's just normal. It's what we do. I've never seen anything like the property market in Vancouver when it comes to keeping up with people and new things and stuff. Ikea is always busy, you know, always got to keep things looking fresh and great. And some of you are investing in the kingdom of God. And sometimes you get discouraged because the enemy wants to come along and say, look at them, look at them, look at them, look at them. You could have that, you could have that, you could have that. If you just stop investing in the kingdom of God. All I want to tell you is that you are choosing wisely. You're literally choosing with a wisdom that is out of this world and the wisdom that you're displaying is going to be confirmed in and for eternity. Eternity. You will be so glad that you chose to put the kingdom of God first and I believe and I know with absolute certainty your heart is going to follow your investment. You will find yourself valuing the things of God more than the things of this world. And you are going to find yourself satisfied in a deeper way than any material possession could make you satisfied. So if that's you and you're doing that, well done. God is so proud of you. Keep going, keep going, keep choosing wisely because it'll keep your heart in the right place. Verse 22, Jesus says, "'The lamp of the body is the eye. "'If therefore your eye is good,' the idea is clear or healthy, "'your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, if your eye is evil or unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? You know, even the brightest sun can't make a blind man see. We see because our eyes receive light. They receive information through light. So if you have an evil eye, if you have an unhealthy eye that can't receive light, your whole body will be dark. Proverbs, it says this. It says, a man with an evil eye hastens, he chases after riches and does not consider that poverty will come upon him. He doesn't consider that poverty will come upon him. Jesus isn't saying that he's going to lose everything. Jesus is saying the rich man has an evil eye who spends his whole life chasing wealth, not understanding that first reality Jesus pointed out. You're not going to live here forever. And the person who dedicates their whole life to the pursuit of money above all else is a fool because they don't understand the true reality that we're not gonna live here forever. It's not wrong to have things, but if you live for things, then your eye is evil and your whole life will be dark. So who has an evil eye? The one who lives for riches, the one whose eyes are always on the material, fleeting wealth of this world. It's his meditation, it's his God, it's what he thinks about before he goes to sleep. Paul wrote this to Timothy. He said, Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Paul didn't say sell your goods. Paul said don't trust in them. That's the difference. He didn't say having stuff is bad. He said trusting in your stuff is bad. Verse 24, Jesus continues and he says, No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Mammon is just the Aramaic word for riches or wealth. You cannot serve God and mammon. He's stating it as a fact that is without exception. Money is not the root of all evil. The love of money is the root of all evil. And, and mammon in this context is more than just cash. Jesus identifies mammon or riches as a master. And I believe mammon is essentially, it's a god, it's a demonic force that wants you to be focused on him in bondage to him and all wrapped up in him. Jesus isn't saying you shouldn't have a home or you shouldn't have a boat or you shouldn't have a car. Write this down. What he's saying is the believer must guard against being possessed by his possessions you have to guard against being possessed by your possessions. And if that happens, if your possessions and your love of them leave you less time and energy and passion for the things of the Lord, then you need to sell them. You need to invest in people. You need to invest in heaven. You need to invest in the things of God. You remember the story where the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and he says, what must must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, sell everything you have. Give it to the poor. Jesus isn't making a statement about charity. Jesus is telling that man, listen, as long as you have this, I'll never have you. I'll never have you. So for you, you need to get rid of this because you can't handle wealth. You can't handle it. You'll always trust it more than me. And that doesn't apply to everyone. There are people, praise God, who've been given the gift of being able to manage and steward that. And if I'm honest, for most of us, in this room. I really believe the reason that we're all not millionaires is simply that God knows deep down we would do the same thing. We would begin to trust in our wealth. Our faith and our confidence would be in our portfolio rather than God. And for God, as we said in the giving message, trust is everything. And I really believe that God wants to bless us as much as he possibly can without causing us to stop trusting in him. Later on in his ministry, Jesus is going to say, what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world but loses his soul? If you lose your soul, it means nothing. In Luke's gospel, Jesus says this, if you have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, so if you haven't been faithful with the unrighteous riches, who will commit to your trust the true riches? Jesus is saying, listen, if if you can't even manage your money on earth in a righteous way, why would you expect anybody to trust you with wealth and riches in heaven? He's like, this, this is just a test right here where you are now. This is small stuff. This is peanuts. I just want to see what you do with a little here on earth. How you manage it. How you steward it. How you prioritize it. Can you possess it without it possessing you? If you can't do that, why would you think I'll trust you with riches in heaven? It's a stern warning from him. Don't fall into the trap of thinking later. And when I say later, I mean, don't fall into the trap of thinking, you know, if I'm unfaithful to God with my money for a while, it'll put me in a position financially to be super faithful later on. That never, ever works out. Because in the time between now and then, your money will gain possession of you. Guaranteed every time. I've never had anybody come up to me or any pastor I know and say, listen, haven't been tithing for 10 years because I was investing in this business, but now I'm here to catch up on the 10 years of tithes that I've missed. Here's my check. That story has never happened, never unfolded, because in the time, those 10 years, your money gains possession of you. Don't fall into the trap of thinking, I have almost nothing, so it doesn't matter. I have almost nothing, so it doesn't matter. It matters. That's why Jesus said, if you're faithful with a little, you'll be faithful with a lot. Be faithful wherever you are right now. And this, this is the truth that I believe. Do you realize that the tithe of what my daughter earns when she mows our lawn is as much God's as it will be when she is 30, 40, 50, 60, 70. The amount is irrelevant. It's about the trust in God and it's about the honor of God. So if you're a parent, I encourage you, teach your kids to tithe right now, and they'll never have an issue with it, ever. It won't be a giant hurdle for them. It'll just be what you do. It's the best gift you can give your kids in the area of finances. I love this verse from the book of Hebrews. It says, let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have, for he himself has said, speaking of Jesus, I will never leave you nor forsake you. The writer of Hebrews is saying, be content with what you have because what you have is Jesus. You have Jesus. And what does it say about Jesus when you have him and you still lament what you don't have? What does that say about Jesus? I've heard it well said that nothing plus Jesus equals everything, everything. You are blessed this morning because you have Jesus. You lack nothing if you have Jesus. What Jesus teaches next is one of the most encouraging, challenging, and profound portions of Scripture in the entire Bible, and in my opinion. I try to read this at least once a month. I meditate on this often. It begins in verse 25. Jesus says, therefore I say to you, and then underline these next three words, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on, Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? I wanted you to underline do not worry because I want to ask you, does it say if you want, don't worry? Does it say I want you to know you have the option not to worry? That doesn't say that. It says explicitly do not worry. It's not advice. It's not simply an encouragement. It's a direct command from the Lord Jesus. It is a direct command from the Lord Jesus. Do not worry. I want you to remember that as we read through this. So does this verse mean we we shouldn't care at all about what we wear or about investments or monetary matters? No, it it doesn't mean that at all. It means we shouldn't be anxious about those things. The literal translation means uh, take no worry. Take no worry. And the word worry actually means to strangle. That's the picture. Don't be worried. Don't be strangled by fear about tomorrow. If you're worried about what you're going to eat or wear or drink or what you have or don't have materially, you're going to find your soul strangled. You're going to find yourself in anxiety, in stress. And that's not the life your Heavenly Father desires for you. I I don't know who said this, but it's such a good quote. It, It just helps you visualize it. Worry is the trickle of fear that soon cuts a crevice so deep that it drains all other thoughts away. Worry is the trickle of fear that soon cuts a crevice so deep that it drains all other thoughts away. Verse 26, he continues, he says, Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. Yet your heavenly Father, underline your heavenly Father, feeds them. Are you not of more value than they I love how the Sermon on the Mount just builds on itself as Jesus keeps teaching. Last week we saw him shock his audience when he tells them to pray. Our Father, referring to the Almighty God as our Father, would have shocked his audience at the time. And now Jesus begins to unpack and elaborate on the character of the Father because he wants us to understand the Father's personality. And we need to hear this today desperately because the concept of a good and loving and caring Father is so foreign to most of our society. It's absolutely tragic, so foreign to most of our society. I don't think that's a coincidence because God put fathers in families to model his character and his care and his love to that family. And I think if there's anything Satan would love to do, man, he would love to make the concept of a loving and caring and good father something that most people don't even have a paradigm of. He would love to destroy the idea of what God is like. If Jesus said simply in our culture today, the father is a good father, that wouldn't be a clear enough point of reference for most people, tragically. To say, what, what is a good father? What, what is a good father? So Jesus is going to commit some time here to letting us know what the father is like by describing how he cares for us, how he's concerned for us, how he wants to provide for us. And if you struggle with the idea of a loving and caring and good father, I want you to underline most of what we're going to read next because what you need to understand more than anything is that you have a heavenly father who loves you and will only ever be good to you. He'll only ever be good to you. In its simplest form, what Jesus has just said is he said, the birds just do what they were created to do. And it all works out. Your heavenly father takes care of them do you have any idea how much more valuable you are than birds to your heavenly father? Just do what you were created to do and he'll take care of the rest. And so what were we created to do? Bring glory and honor to Jesus. That's why we're here. That's why he put us here. If we make that our concern, if we seek to glorify God in the way we relate to others, in the way we work, in the way we invest our resources, God will take care of the rest. Write this down. If we will focus on fulfilling our God-ordained purpose, which is bringing glory to him, God will take care of all of our needs. He'll take care of all our needs. When we stress about the future, what we're saying is that we believe it all depends on us. We believe it all depends on us. Jesus says, stop. Just, Just stop. Do you do you really believe that your heavenly Father takes better care of birds than he wants to take care of you? Do you really believe that? Do you believe he takes care of them, but he's left you all on your own just to fend for yourself? Do you really believe that? First Peter says we're supposed to cast all our anxieties onto God. So how do, how do we do that? In Philippians 4, it says this. He says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, Let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Be anxious for nothing. Pray about everything. Be thankful in all things. And I really believe that the be thankful there is be thankful about the character of your heavenly father. Thank him that you know he hears you. Thank him that he knows what you need. Thank him that he loves to provide for you. Thank him, because those things are facts. Those are not things you have to ask. You don't have to ask him to care for you. You need to thank him that he does care for you. It's just a fact. Jesus wants us to be a carefree people. And one of the most difficult changes I've realized in, in going from working for someone to running your own business is that you getting paid is no longer somebody else's problem. It's your problem. So you didn't realize it before, but suddenly now you realize, man, I was, I was carefree I didn't go home and be like, I wonder if my check is going to be in my my mailbox in two weeks. I didn't worry about that because that was somebody else's problem. They had to make sure that the money got there. I just showed up for work and came home from work and got paid. What a great deal. I was carefree. I was carefree because that was somebody else's responsibility to figure out how I got paid. Jesus is telling us that whoever we are, we have a heavenly Father who delights in taking on the responsibility of all of our needs being met. He loves to do that. When you work for someone most of the time, you just show up and you get paid. The father invites us to be concerned with living for his glory and he says he'll take care of the rest. So, so if, if we don't lose sleep about our paycheck arriving when that's somebody else's responsibility, if we just do what we've been given to do, we handle our responsibilities we've been entrusted with, And we have peace because there's a person in charge of making sure our paycheck arrives. How much more at peace should we be knowing that the almighty God of heaven and earth has said, I'll make sure your needs are met. I'll take care of it. We should all be sleeping like babies. Because his word is a far better word than the word of any man or any person. You know, worry is assuming a responsibility that God did not intend for us to have. Every single one of you, God's given you a job description for your life. Worrying is not on it. That's on his list. He says, that's not your responsibility. Verse 27, he continues and says, which of you by worrying can add one cubit, which is about 18 inches, to his stature, to his height? He's like, worrying isn't going to make you taller. It's not going to make you bigger, stronger. So why... And he's saying, so why? He's saying, in light of the information that your heavenly Father takes care of the birds and values you much more than them, in light of that information, why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. They don't work for what they have. And yet, I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed. He wasn't dressed like one of these now, if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? And then underline, "O oh, you of little faith. O oh, you of little faith. He's asking a stinging rhetorical question. He's asking us to be rational. He's saying, look around you, look around you. Look at creation all around you. It testifies day and night, nonstop, 24-7, 365, that God is in the details. He's got it covered. The ecosystems do not collapse because our Heavenly Father has it covered. It's taken care of. So in light of that, in light of that testimony all around us, Jesus is saying, why, why, why do you find it so hard to believe that your Heavenly Father will take care of you? I had you underline you of little faith because I want us to realize that Jesus is telling us plainly that worry and stress about the future is a faith issue. It's a faith issue. You can write that down. Where you and I like to freak out and stress out and say, it's a money issue. Jesus says it's a faith issue. This is a faith issue. Either you believe that my father will take care of you or you don't. And if you're worried and stressed out, then apparently you don't. It's a faith issue, and God will find a new way. Have you noticed this? A new way every day to ask you and I the question, do you trust me? he will find a new way to ask that question every day. Do you trust me? Do you trust me? George Mueller has this amazing quote. He says, where anxiety begins, faith ends. And where faith begins, Anxiety ends. I love that. Verse 31, Jesus keeps going. He says, therefore, do not worry, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek, the non-believers. And that line always cuts me really deeply because Jesus is saying, when you say things like, what are we going to eat or what are we going to wear or how are we going to pay our bills? You're talking like my father. Your father doesn't exist. You're talking like he doesn't exist, like he's not looking out for you. You're acting exactly the same way people act who believe there is no God. You're acting like an atheist. You have a heavenly father who loves you and cares for you. So act like it. Act like it. When I catch myself doing that, I I have to pull away and go somewhere quiet, get alone and, and honestly apologize to God and just say, Father, I'm so sorry. I know that you love me. I know that you care for me. Please forgive me for talking as though you don't, because I know you do. When we face great challenges, let's make sure that our speech makes much of our Heavenly Father and makes much of his care and love for us. Where non-believers would be found speaking in fear, I pray that we would be found speaking in confidence because the Almighty God of heaven and earth is the same God that we get to call Father. Let's make sure we honor him with our words when we're going through challenges. Jesus says, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. He knows. Then verse 33, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added to you. He says, all the things you're worrying about will be given to you if you'll seek me first. This is on your outline. Verse 33 is the Christian life summed up in a command and a promise. It's the Christian life summed up in a command and a promise. What's the command? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Seek God, his kingdom above everything else. Make it your sole pursuit in life. That's the command. What's the promise? And all these things will be added to you. Everything you need will be given to you if you'll follow this one command. Everything in the Christian life flows out of that command. Everything. When you have a specific need, you should ask your heavenly father for what you need, but you should also ask him to help you seek his kingdom first. Because he made a promise. He said, listen, if you find your needs not being met, before you start talking to me like I'm a bad provider, why don't you stop and say, am I seeking the kingdom of God first? Or am I seeking it third or fourth or seventh or fifteenth? Because if I am, that's really what needs to change. The issue isn't God's not providing. The issue is I'm not holding up my side of the deal. I'm not seeking him above everything else. Verse 34, therefore, do not worry about tomorrow. Another command. For tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. This is profound to me because you have the command again, do not worry about tomorrow. But Jesus is giving us insight into how he created us as human beings. He's telling us something about how we're made. What Jesus is saying is he's saying, I made you with the capacity to emotionally and spiritually deal with today. That's your capacity. I don't care how high functioning you think you are. Jesus says, that's your capacity. I made you to live emotionally and spiritually in today that's all you can handle when you try to take on more than that he says you're crossing into my turf and you're not big enough to handle that responsibility you're going to drive yourself crazy with worry and fear because you don't hold the future i hold the future I made you to live and function in today. So he wants us to look ahead. He wants us to plan ahead. He wants us to have vision and wisdom, but he doesn't want us to concern ourselves emotionally with the future. He doesn't want our heart tied up in the future. He says, make your plans. Invest wisely. Plan for the future. Be diligent. But don't trust in the future. Don't trust in the future. We have to let the rest go in faith, believing that God holds it in his hands. And one of the reasons for this is because, have you noticed this, that when it comes to the future, there are non-linearities in life. And here's what I mean is we tend to view the future as being linear. So the best indicator of what tomorrow is going to be like is what today is like. And this week is the best indicator of what next week's going to be like. This year is the best indicator of what next year is going to be like, and so forth. But all of us know that life is not linear. There's unexpected things that pop up. People get sick. Accidents happen. The market fluctuates. Jobs are gained. Promotions happen. Jobs are lost. The future is not linear. We don't know what it is. So we are foolish to place our trust in the future as though it's going to be linear and dependable. The future is not dependable. The God who holds the future is dependable, and that's where we are to put our faith. That's where we are to put our trust. Write this down. We plan for the future, but we don't depend on the future. We depend on Jesus. We plan for the future, but we don't depend on it. We depend on Jesus. In Luke's gospel, it's recorded like this. Jesus says, do not fear, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom Sell what you have and give alms. Provide yourselves money bags which do not grow old, a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches nor moth destroys. That's just Jesus sharing the heart of the Father towards his children, towards you and I. He's telling us that the heart of the Father is to bless his kids and to take care of his kids. The greatest thing our Heavenly Father could do for us once we're saved is to help us store up treasures in heaven to set us up for eternity. That's what a good father would do, where our treasures will last forever rather than here where they'll be left behind and destroyed. The father knows that we have daily needs that can occupy all of our focus, all of our energy, all of our passion, all of our emotions. So the father in his infinite kindness and goodness offers us a deal, and the deal is this. You worry about storing up treasures in heaven. You worry about that. You worry about my kingdom, and I'll take care of everything you need for today. I'll take care of everything you need for today. It's so beautifully and divinely simple and so difficult to remember. And please know I'm teaching this as someone who is struggling to live this out personally. This is incredibly difficult to live out. But the only conclusion I can come to when I read this at face value, which is I believe the way the Lord would have us take it, is that Christians are not supposed to be stressed out. Ever. We're not supposed to be Stressed out. Because the only way that you and I ever get stressed out is by worrying that God is somehow not going to keep his promises to be good, to be faithful. Worrying that he's not going to take care of us or our family. It is impossible to be full of faith and close to Jesus and be stressed out. Stress just pulls us away from the Lord. I'm trying and generally failing miserably to remember that when I'm stressed, it says more about me than my circumstance. It says much more about me than the situation I'm facing. And in that moment, I don't really need prayer for my stress to go away. I need prayer that I would trust the Father the way he deserves to be trusted. That's what I need prayer for. I don't need prayer to pump up God to be good, right? I need prayer to just act like God actually is good, because he is. I'm the one that needs an adjustment. Let me take this one step further. Jesus commanded us not to worry about the future. To disobey that command is sin. It's sin. Worry, write this down, worry, anxiety, and stress about the future is sin. It's sin because it was a command. I was listening to Chuck Missler the other day, and he says it's a form of blasphemy because our worry about the future comes from a belief that God is not who he says he is. And he will not do what he says he'll do. There's the loving, encouraging side of this that I hope, that I hope we all get because it's wonderful and beautiful. There's the side of this that is just warm and fuzzy. But I want to make sure we don't leave here thinking like this is like an Instagram that you would see on Facebook. That's a little encouraging thought for the day. Because that's, that's one side of this. But there's also the serious side here, that that this is a sin issue and this is a faith issue. It's a sin issue and a faith issue. And some of us, me included, need to repent for not trusting the Lord. It's a serious sin. It's a serious sin. Some of us need healing and deliverance from living in this sin of worry and anxiety on a daily basis. Some of us, man, Satan has his claws in, in this area. Worry and anxiety every day all the time it's not a quirk it's not your personality it's a a sin issue we need healing and deliverance from that as I said I'll, I'll be repenting along with you this morning but there is no room in our lives let me put it this way there is no room in our lives for anything that dishonors the Lord there's no room for anything that dishonors the Lord and our worry about the future is dishonoring to God because it tells the rest of the world, it tells our spouses and our families that we are not confident in the character of our God. We are not confident in His word. We' are not confident that He is who he says He is. And so we need to get a handle on that. He's a loving father who is kind and good to his children. He provides for us. He cares for us. He's faithful to us. The word says even when we're not faithful to him. And he desires that we would live free of stress and anxiety over the future. But let's be people of faith who live and trust God and produce the fruit of peace in our lives because we do that. That when people are around us, there's just a peace And it's not a peace that comes from everything being perfect, everything being in its place. It's a peace that comes from, listen, all the things in my life that could fall apart at any minute, those are someone else's responsibility. And that person happens to be God. So yeah, I sleep well at night. I sleep really well at night because he loves me. So in conclusion, what do we need to do with God's word today? I I think firstly, going back close to the beginning of the message. If there is someone you're holding unforgiveness against, you need to forgive them. You need to release them from that debt. That's the way to view it. We're we're not saying that you go back to someone who's been repeatedly abusive and invite them to do it again. We're not saying that. We're just saying you release them from the debt that they owe you because they've wronged you. Say, I I can't hold that debt because Jesus hasn't held on to any of mine. Bible says he has cast our sins into the sea of his forgetfulness. He has somehow found a way to literally forget our sins and we need to pray that he would help us to do the same if that's you you take communion today you remind yourself that you're forgiven and then you forgive and you ask the Lord to heal you of the stain of that sin on your life and he'll do it I believe that and then secondly if you're stressed out or if you've been living a life that you're realizing reveals you don't believe that you have a heavenly father who cares for you then this morning let's repent Let's repent, and that's so important because when we repent, we are saying, it's not acceptable to me to live like this. This is not the way I want to live. I don't consider this to be okay, and I want to live differently. That's why repentance is so important, and then we follow that up by choosing to trust him as we go forward to rebuke worry from our lives and replace it with a trust in the Lord. Psalm 55, 22 says, cast your burden on the Lord, And he shall sustain you. He shall never permit the righteous to be moved. And if we could understand that, it would change everything. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. All these things. There is no reason for anybody here who is anxious or stressed out to leave here today in that same place. There's no reason. The God who's worthy of your trust is here. The God who can heal you and free you of that is here. Don't leave with that burden this morning if that's you. Let's pray together. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? Father, we thank you so much that you have forgiven us more than we know, in the most literal way, more than we know. God, you you could fill an ocean with each of our transgressions. And instead, you covered all of them up with the blood of your son, Jesus. Thank you for forgiving us, God. And I pray right now for any of us who are struggling with forgiving someone else, may the overwhelming reality of your forgiveness toward us make forgiving anybody else seem microscopic in comparison. May the ocean of grace that you have poured over us, God, Make this a no-brainer. We pray in Jesus' name, by the power of the Holy Spirit, that forgiveness would be released in each of us this morning, that we would live free of unforgiveness, God. And then I pray for all of us, myself included, God, for those seasons, those days, those moments where we have lived in fear and worry and anxiety over the future. And acted as though you are not who you are. Father, would you please forgive us for dishonoring your name, which is worthy of all honor, God. And this morning, we pray in each of us that you would replace a confession of fear and doubt and anxiety and worry with a confession of confidence in the almighty God, the King of kings, the Alpha, the Omega, the First and the Last, the Prince of Peace, Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, who knows what we have need of before we even ask, who knows how to give good gifts to His children, who cares for us more than the birds of the air and provides for us more than the lilies of the field. God, would our confession be that You are good and You are enough And so we rest in you with confidence. We trust in you with full confidence, God. May you be honored by our trust. May we honor you rightly, God. And we pray in Jesus' name that every bit of stress and anxiety this morning would be healed and released and cast out in Jesus' name and replaced by your peace. If God is for us, who can be against us? you just spend a moment in stillness, keep your eyes closed and just allow the Holy Spirit to speak to you and and, and reveal what this looks like in your life, what you need to do, what you need to let go of.